Yeah, we just pray for Mike. Father, just pray for Mike Davies, just this father in the house, an amazing teacher, Lord. Just show that he's got such an amazing word for us, God, and that lives will be changed. We're so looking forward to hear from him, even though he was a little bit late. But yeah, grace in the name of Lord Jesus. Amen. You know, there are those who, who have cheekily said recently that I'm beginning to look a little like Gandalf. So in, to uh, paraphrase him, I'm never late, nor am I early. I, pre- I arrive precisely when I mean to. <laughs> now my apologies. My apologies for arriving late uh, on account of you guys being so strange that you guys meet at four o'clock when all of our other congregations meet at five. But hey, nothing wrong with being different, right? Funnily enough, that's what I want to talk about this afternoon, about being different. I don't often give my preachers a title, um, but the title of my preach tonight is, You Are Peculiar. You Are Peculiar. And uh, for those of you... I've never read the King James Version of the Bible because it's full of strange words. You've probably not come across the particular wording of a couple of verses that that word word is used. And in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 of the King James Version, it says, But ye, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that word peculiar originally meant like you are unique, you are a particular people. But over time the meaning changed and it was like, yes, you are unique. I I often use that term as as an insult. Yeah, he's definitely unique. And by that, I mean strange, crazy, whatever. But in terms of what God's called us to be, not only are we a chosen nation, not only, let's read that verse in the NIV version or ESV version, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it's not just that we are chosen, not just that we are special, we are strange. We are weird as far as the world goes, right? And it's a nice sunny afternoon. What are you doing here? Are you, are you, are you mad? And then you come here and like, that's just weird. Like you sing about this lamb and this lion and it's, it's like weird, right? And then you give money to the church. That's got to be really weird. And I meet so many Christians and they say, I don't want to be too extreme because I don't want people to think that I'm strange. And I settled long ago, people already think I'm strange. So I may as well give them full reason to think I'm strange. You know, the weirdest thing, weirdest thing of all, actually, the thing that most people have contempt for isn't that you're weird with conviction or that you try and be normal, it's when you try and live with a foot in each camp. When you don't have the courage of your conviction to be full out different. And we are called to be different. You know, my my daughter likes this thing on YouTube. I hate it, but it's 
It's this little thing, uh, I forget the, the name of the company, but they put six people in a box and they'll have like six atheists and one Christian or six uh, foreigners and one lo- whatever. And they've got to figure out who is the imposter. And very often they struggle to find out in the, who the imposter is. And I would like to think that if I was put in a box in a room with five atheists, it would be very difficult, even if I tried for them to realize I also, you know, I, I think I should stand out like a sore thumb. And in this world in which we live in, if people have to guess whether you've got a relationship with Jesus, you're probably doing it wrong. If you've not been rejected at least once, if you've not been insulted at least once, if people haven't kind of distanced themselves from you at some point, not because of lack of deodorant, but because of your relationship with Jesus, then you're probably doing something wrong. Because Jesus' promise was that we would be hated and rejected. And this thing that we believe is weird. You know, many people reject the gospel because they don't understand it. Other people reject the gospel because they do understand it. And it's offensive and strange and peculiar, isn't it? Because this is what the gospel says. You can get somebody like Nelson Mandela, who did great things for this nation and brought reconciliation and unity. He risked his own uh, reputation and his own friendships with his own political party in order to work towards reconciliation. You can say what you like about him, that he did. And many people around the world consider him a saint. Like if you go, who's the one politician in history that you admire? Like the right answer for most people is Nelson Mandela, right? But the gospel says outside of a relationship with Christ, he's destined for eternity in hell. And that seems really offensive. Especially then when you say, um, for example, there was a guy called Jeffrey Dahmer. Anybody heard the name Jeffrey Dahmer? Serial killer in America, cannibal. He would um, seduce young men, take them home, uh, kill them, chop them into pieces and eat parts of them. But when he was in prison, and the story seemed seemed to suggest this was a genuine thing, while he was in prison, he surrendered his heart to Christ and got baptized before he was murdered in prison. And so Jeffrey Dahmer... Serial killer cannibal could spend eternity in heaven where potentially, I don't know what Nelson Mandela's relationship with Jesus was, but if he didn't have a relationship, a good man goes to hell for eternity. Who thinks that's weird? Who thinks that's offensive? How many of you who follow Jesus even struggle with that a little bit? Right? Because within our human mind, it just, we struggle to make sense of that. And we know that all God's ways are just and that he is perfect. And we accept that. But we can accept that because we know the judge is passing sentence. But what we believe is weird, guys. We believe that some obscure guy in the Middle East was killed and came alive again. We believe in talking donkeys. That's pretty strange, right? Think of some of the things that we believe in. Some of the things that we are absolutely convinced are true. You've got to be weird, man. You've got to be a little bit strange. Because the truth is indeed stranger than fiction.
just think of your some of our favorite heroes. And I've, I've kind of done this a little bit before, but I want to do it again. We read the Bible and we read about some of the heroes of the faith. And so, yeah, that is awesome. And we, we forget, we don't realize just how weird the story is. So think, for example, of Noah. He comes home one day to Mrs. Noah. Was her name John? John of Ark, yeah. That's just for you, Davidson. So I want to introduce my friend Davidson. He's from Brazil. He's over here for a few months to uh, get to know us. And he's got this theory because he, apparently his dad tells bad jokes. His theory is that when you get ordained into eldership, you get this anointing to tell really bad jokes. It's like dad jokes, but on the next level, yeah. So, so, so Noah goes home to John, and he says, um, you'll never guess what happened to me today. God spoke to me. And she says, really, what did he say? He said to build an ark. And her first question is, what on earth is an ark? Well, it's a really big boat. Like, how big? Really big. Like, really big. And what does he want you to build this boat for? Well, he wants me to put a bunch of animals in it. Like, how many animals? Like, a dog and a cat? Well, two dogs, two cats, two budgies, two giraffes, two lions, two of everything, really. And how you know he was a real man of faith, he even put two termites on that thing. Termite walked into a bar, he said, where's the bartender? (laughs) Only some of you will get that, okay. And she said, why do we have to build a boat for animals? Are we moving to the ocean? No, we're going to build it here. But there's no water. Yeah, but it's going to rain. What's rain? How many have seen the, the movie Evan Almighty? And everybody thought he was insane. It must have been at least a little bit like that. We can read that and go, oh, yeah, of course he does, because we know the the end of the story. But he was, it's a strange thing to do. What about Moses? Moses out in the desert with his sheep, comes home to his wife. Yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it, Davidson. He's begging me not to do it, but I'm going to do it. So he comes home to his wife. What's, what was uh, Moses' wife called? Who said that? You get a brownie point. Yeah. Zipporah. Except he, he, he shortened it to Zippo. Because while he was quite big, she was a little lighter. Come on, that deserves a better response than that. Come on, guys. <laughs> Davidson's going, oh, and he comes home to, to Zippo. And he says, you'll never guess what happened to me today. The Lord spoke to me out of a burning bush. And what did he say? He said, go back to Egypt and free my people. Really? Okay. And how do you know it was God? Well, he took my staff and he turned it into a snake. That staff you've got in your hand, 
well, he turned it back again. Uh, and any other signs? Yeah, 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 he gave me leprosy. What? No, no, I got better. I mean, he comes up, what evidence does he have? What proof does he have of his encounter with God? What evidence did Noah have? One for the ladies. Murray phones a dad. Okay, bear with me, okay? Dramatic device, we know the word. Okay. Hey, dad, I've got some news for you. What is it? I'm pregnant. Wait till I get all to Joseph, I'm going to break it. No, 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 dad, 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 dad. It's not Joseph's baby. What? What kind of guy? I didn't raise it. No, 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 dad, you don't understand. This is God's baby. I'm still a virgin. And in fact, in the Gospels, we get a hint that that scandal followed her for the rest of her life. At one point it says, and Joseph, the father, so it was said, of Jesus. All right, nudge, nudge. Yeah, that's his dad. Yeah, but she was conceived, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he was, yeah. And, I mean, today, people back then weren't more stupid than... I think, I think we're more stupid in this generation than past generations. But if somebody came to you and said, I'm pregnant, but I've never had sex, what would you think of them? Well, here's a really spiritual person before me. Or here's a right loony. You see, every hero of the faith, just about, has had to face other people's opinions of them as having lost their minds. What about Gideon? Gideon gets some credibility, so he begins to lead an army. And as he's leading this army, he gets them together. He says, okay, boys, I know we're outnumbered, but there's too many of us. What general in history has pulled his army together and said, guys, I need some of you to go home? Living a life of faith, I think in isolation and in theory, I think we all kind of, we all, we'd all love to be that hero of the faith, right? We read these stories of these Bible characters and we go, Lord, I would love to be used like that by you. And then he comes and says, why don't you share the gospel with your neighbor? Oh, no, I can't do that. They'll think I've lost my mind. Why don't you do this with your finances? No, I can't do that. It doesn't make sense. We've got to be willing to be strange. We've got to be willing for people to say you've lost your mind. We've got to be willing to be different. And we've got to be willing to step out beyond our own understanding. And I said this, an act of faith, somebody once said, uh, Adam will know it is, who talked about a blind leap of faith? I'll give you a few minutes, you'll figure it out. But this philosophical context that, that faith is a blind leap. My faith isn't a blind leap because faith for me is not contrary to reason. It's just beyond my reason. It was contrary to my darkened mind before I met Christ. But having come to Christ, I understand his ways, even if on the surface they don't seem to make sense. I understand the concept 
of dying to live. I understand the concept of, of losing my life and not living it. I understand the concept of being last in order to be first. I understand those concepts, even though they're alien to the ways of the world, because they're not counter to my logic. But I cannot follow God simply with logic. I can't take all the biblical principles and say, if I apply them to my life, I'll, I'll be in obedience to Christ. No, he requires faith, which is stepping beyond my logic and being willing to be different, willing to be strange, willing to be peculiar, willing to be rejected. And we don't often say this, willing to be wrong. Willing to step out and fall flat on your face. Because you thought it was God, but it wasn't. Anybody done that? I wish I had six arms to raise. I'm an expert on mistakes. And then having failed badly, getting up and saying, I'm going to try again. And daring to live a life where you try things that are so impossible that if God isn't in it, it's doomed to failure. When was the last time you tried that? There's a line in uh, Alice in Wonderland where Alice is talking to the queen. And I'm going to, I can't remember the exact quote, so this will be a little bit of a paraphrase. But the queen asked asked, uh, Alice something, and Alice says, but that's impossible. And the queen says, I often do six impossible things before breakfast. And I'm not asking us all to be people who do six impossible things before breakfast. But could you dare to try one impossible thing this week? And what are the impossible things we can try where we risk looking like idiots? Praying for the sick. Praying for a sick person requires you to be willing to look wrong, okay? Because I've prayed for many people, and sometimes they don't get healed. But guess what? Sometimes they do. I was talking to Davidson the other day, and I, I don't know if it's something about the water in Brazil But I can tell you about six couples in Brazil I've prayed for who couldn't have children, who now have children. I've prayed for another probably 20 people who couldn't have children, who still don't have children. So I've failed more than I've succeeded. And I haven't succeeded, God has. But by stepping out and daring the impossible, I've seen the impossible happen. Because God has used me. But if I'm only trying the possible, why do I even need God? So a question I've done before. How many of you would love to raise somebody from the dead? Anybody, please. Anybody would love to raise somebody from the dead. Keep your hands up. Okay, that's a bit of a healthier number. Thank goodness for that. I thought we were in big trouble. Right, now how many of you, keep your hands up if you want to, keep your hands up if you've actually prayed for a dead person? Okay. That's why most of you have never seen somebody raised from the dead. Well done, those who have. If you've never prayed for a dead person, how do you expect anybody to be raised from the dead by you or by God through you? Now, I've prayed for several dead people, and I've seen none of them raised from the dead yet. And I'm going to keep praying for dead people until one day one of them rises from the dead and I'll die of a heart attack in shock. (laughs) And then it'll just be like this vicious cycle of raising people from the dead. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying go out and everybody visit cemeteries and mortuaries and undertakers tomorrow. I'm saying dare to live your life where you're willing to take these risks. And too often our reputation, and we don't think of it as our reputation because we like to think we don't care what people think. Anybody here doesn't care what people think? It's not quite true. We all care what people think. The question is, do you care so much that it will shape your behavior? I'm as awkward as they come, and I care what people think. If I leave tonight and you all say, that was the worst preach I've ever heard, I'll survive it, but I'll probably be a little bit down and depressed. Thank you. And now I feel good, because I care what people think. Now, I care what you think, but I care more what God thinks. But if we allow what people think to shape our behavior more than what God thinks, we're in trouble. And we don't think of it that way, but often we're afraid of being wrong. Why are we so afraid of being wrong? What's so bad about being wrong? The only people that have never done anything wrong are the people that have never done anything. We are a peculiar people. Peculiar has has different meanings. It means strange, unexpected. Are you unexpected? Are you different to what is normal? Peculiar also means particular or special. And there's something special about you. And I know we grow up in a day and age where every kid is special and gets a trophy for nothing. And I think, actually, you know, we, we keep emphasizing this thing of we need to, we need to build self-esteem. We need, and yes, we do. Self-esteem is important. I think in most of our kids, they've got too many people trying to build self, self-esteem into them and not enough people building reality into them. Because if everybody's special, nobody's special. But, and so there's that, but there is something special about you. And what's special about you is that the author of creation lives within you and has called you for a purpose. Now, if that doesn't make you special, I don't know what does. If that doesn't make you particular, I don't know what does. And every one of you, without exception, even if you've never surrendered to Christ, he has a desire to use you and he's got things for you to do that, have, that, that he's had in mind since before you were created and he's just waiting for you to come into a place of obedience so that he can use you to do things that will leave people dumbfounded at the power and the goodness of our God. We're a peculiar people. And if you're going to be peculiar, be peculiar all the way. If you come to church on a Sunday and you say, I'm not going to dance and lift my hands because that's a bit strange. People already think you're strange. You're here. So at least might be full, full on committed to being strange. That wasn't a strategic pause. That was me genuinely being thirsty. Thanks for the coke. Water just doesn't do the same thing, does it? 
I'm, I'm almost convinced that if Coke had been around in the time of Jesus, he would have said, ask of me and I will give you streams of living Coca-Cola. <laughs> or is that, have I crossed the line again? I'm sorry, I often cross the line. As I said the other week, I know where the line is. It's usually in my rear view mirror after I've crossed it. But... Mm. And in 1 Corinthians 16, we, we read this story, and you don't have to turn there, uh, but in 1 Corinthians 15 and 16, it's the story of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant from the outskirts. It, it's been delivered back to the Israelites by the Philistines, but it's been in staying in some guy's house for years. And eventually David realizes, wait a minute, that's not the right place for it. This Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of the glory of God, needs to be in his temple. It needs to be in the center of God's people. And so the first time they try it, they make a pig's ear of it. They put it on a, on a cart. And God says, that's not the way it's supposed to be done. The way it's supposed to be done, it's supposed to be carried by the priests on their shoulders. And so this time, the ark is lifted and carried on the shoulders of the Levites. And they bring the presence of God. They bring the glory of God. They bring something of his power back into the center of the life of Israel. And Israel is the people of God into his temple. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, we've got to understand that the Old Testament is full of stories that are real stories of real things that really happened. But God uses those stories as object lessons for us. And the things that happened are often symbolic, the, the physical things that are symbolic of greater spiritual realities. And so, pop quiz time. In the Old Testament, God resided in his temple. What is that symbolic of? Us. Ten points for you. Because we are God's temple, right? Being built together with living stones of which Jesus is the foundation. So his temple isn't some building. When we say we're going to church, we're not going to a building. We're going to join the church, the people of God. And the Greek word for church is ecclesia. And ecclesia speaks of people who've been called out for a purpose. So you've been called out. You've been separated. I'll choose you. You're weird enough. You're weird enough. Yeah, you're weird enough. You're not weird enough, but I'll make you weird. Right. Okay. Now you're my peculiar people. And the purpose that you have isn't just to be strange. The purpose you have is to display the glory of God to people who don't yet know him. And so God's intent is that he would display his glory and his power and his presence through his people. And in David's day, it isn't there. It's on the outskirts. And that's often how people live. There's kind of, yeah, an acknowledgement of the presence of God, but it's on the outskirts of my life. It's added on to my life. What somebody once called bolt-on Christianity, which I didn't like because I'm from the town of Bolton. Bolt-on. My, my, dad, my dad worked in a, in a suburb of Bolton called Little Lever. And when he had to give his address, people just went, little lever, bolt on. No, you're having a laugh. It's like, but bolt on Christianity. It's like, I've got my, and I'll just bolt something onto the side of it. And it's this extra thing. No, it's supposed to be central. It's supposed to be integral. 
And then the second part of this picture is that the presence of God is carried by the priests. It's carried by the Levites. It's carried on their shoulders. They bear the burden to bring that back into the center of the life of the people. And what does Peter say? You are a kingdom of priests. You are the Levites. Our job, our role, one of our functions, one of our particular callings is to be the strange people who ourselves carry something of the presence and glory of God for the benefit of others. And do you know why the Levites were chosen as the priests? This is a scary story. When Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, while he was away, the people got bored of waiting and they chose to start worshipping a golden calf, an idol. Now, our golden calves are money, career, kids, wives, reputations, whatever our golden calves are. And because they took their eyes off God and started to worship something they could see, something material, they began to fall into depravity and all kinds of evil, ungodly behavior. And when Moses came down the mountain, he was a little bit miffed. I think that's the, um, I think that's the New King James translation. And Moses was a little miffed. <laughs> now, Moses was angry because the people had forsaken God in such a short time. And he knew that God's judgment had to come. He knew there had to be a discipline. He knew that there had to be a cleansing of this evil from amongst God's people. And he calls out, those who are with me, Come stand with me. And the Levites came to stand with Moses. And then he said, take your swords and go through the camp. Dispensing God's justice. In other words, killing people. And it says they went through the camp. Killing. And they killed friends. They killed family. Now that's quite a horrendous story to our modern Western mindsets, right? But the picture is this. God needed priests who considered obedience to God of far greater importance than anything else. And as Levites, we're called out to be those who say, I will be ruthless in my service of God. I will be completely devoted in my service of God. Now, if you're completely devoted in your service to God, you won't harm other people. I'm in full-time ministry. I travel the world. And people say, but won't your wife get neglected? My wife will get neglected if I put ministry above her. If I put ministry above God, she'll never be neglected if I put God above ministry because God values her and won't let me neglect her. And he will ensure that I give her everything that she needs. Not everything she wants, but everything that she needs. And so whether it's ministry or, or, or you've got a job or a career or a business or or a hobby, whatever it is. If you seek, the, seek first the kingdom of God, that means you will have godly order in your life. But godly order doesn't mean putting other people above the kingdom. But when you put kingdom first, you will bring something of the love and the order and the caring and the protection that God requires of you for those things for which you've got responsibility. But we need to be Levites. We need to be those who are carrying the presence of God on our shoulders bringing it back, 
centrally into the life of ourselves and the church and others. So I would ask you, if you're a Levite tonight, and if you understand my role is is to uh, serve God, worship Him, and carry His presence with me as I go and bring it into a central place, just ask yourself for one moment, what does that mean for you when you come into a church service? Does that mean the guys up here are responsible for bringing the presence of God, especially the bass? Love the five-string man. That bottom B, voice of God. It's not their job to bring the presence of God. It's their job to lead us as each of us brings something of the presence of God that each one of us is uniquely qualified to bring. And if you don't bring it, we're missing a facet that nobody else can bring. And if you get into, part, if you get into observation mode and go, uh, look at those weirdos up front. Or if you think, mm, it's not my particular preference. I prefer a different kind of worship. Actually, what you prefer isn't important because our job is to bring what he wants. And I think it's no uh, coincidence that during this time when David sees the presence of God being brought back to its rightful place, he begins to dance and spin around in his underwear and his wife mocks him and says, You're ridiculing yourself. You're opening yourself up to ridicule from other people. You're being undignified. You are losing your reputation. And he said, woman, you ain't seen nothing yet. I think that's a direct quote as well, yeah. I'm going to get struck by lightning today. He says, no, I will become even more undignified. Because I'm so passionate for the presence of God, I don't care what people think. And what happened to her, it says she became barren and never bore any children. I think God is saying, if we want fruitfulness in life, true fruitfulness, then we have to be a people who are abandoned to him first and not slaves to the opinions, dictates, morals, and the culture of the people amongst whom we live. You know, one of the most stupid comments I come across on a regular basis, is when dealing with some kind of worldview issues. And people say, Jesus only did this, or Paul only did this because of the culture that they lived in, and they were bound by their culture. I'm like, if Jesus really conformed to the culture in which he lived, they wouldn't have nailed him to a tree. They nailed him to a tree precisely because he challenged the culture in which he lived. Paul was beheaded precisely because he went against the culture in which he lived. If he was conforming to the culture, he wouldn't have been a threat. They'd have left him alone. We need fruitfulness. And fruitfulness comes when we're abandoned to him, not when we're living according to the expectations or opinion of others. So what does it mean to be a Levite? And I've just got three points, and this will be quick because I know I've been going long already. Being a priest of the Lord, being a a peculiar people means having a God-centered life, not a man-centered life. 
having a theology, not a meology. I've said this before. Davidson even shared this. I think Jamais said this. Uh, Jamais, who leads an apostolic network in Brazil, good friend of mine, we're like this in the way we think. I've told this story. Jamais told a very similar story. But there's a difference between cats and dogs, right? So if you've got a dog, any dog owners? So a dog thinks like this. You feed me. You house me. You love me. You take care of me. You must be my owner. A cat thinks like this. You feed me. You house me. You look after me. You love me. I must be a cat. Yeah? So the meology or meology is a perspective of a cat where I put me at the center and I explain everything around how it affects me. And a lot of bad theology out there is because people are putting the center, themselves at the center of the theology instead of God at the center of this. God can't judge me because I'm so special. No, you're not special at all outside of God. Put God at the center of your thinking. In Psalm 121, the psalmist writes, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my strength come from? And that's a a psalm that they would sing on the way to Jerusalem uh, when they had to go to Jerusalem a couple of times a year. And the idea is I'm walking in the valley and there's hills. And I'm looking at this and going, what's coming through here? Bandits, enemy soldiers, lions, bears, vegan cross-fitting Jehovah's Witnesses who sell life insurance. <laughs> Sorry. If, yeah. Uh, how do you know if somebody's a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. How do you know, know if somebody's a crossfitter? Don't worry, they'll tell you. Uh, so a vegan crossfitter, Jehovah's Witness, life insurance salesman. Come, run! And that is, I'm looking up at these hills... And, I, and when my focus is on the hills, my, my brain starts, what's coming? What dangers? What's coming next? COVID, new variant, unemployment, World War Three, corrupt government, anarchy in South Africa. If we look up to the hills, we can have an endless list of bad things that are going to happen to us. Sickness, bereavement. But the psalmist says, no, I look to God. And we have a choice of where we place our focus. We can focus on the hills. We can focus on our problems. Or we can focus on our past. We can keep looking behind us and going, I wish I was back home in my bed. Or we can focus on the future and go, it'll be okay once we get to Jerusalem. Now, most people miss out on the joys of life because they're always wishing they were at the next stage of life. I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when. And you're called to be full of joy now. And so we can look backwards, we can look forwards, we can look left and right, or we can look inward. And guess what? When people say, I want to go find myself, I say, please don't. You're not going to find anything good. Don't go looking for yourself. Go looking for Jesus. So don't look at yourself. David didn't say, I'm searching myself to find all the bad things. He said, you search me, O Lord. 
So we can look inward, we can look forward, we can look backward, we can look left, or we can look right, or we can look heavenward. And true priests of God are those whose eyes are fixed on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. How am I going to run my race till the end? Fix my eyes on the finishing line. Fix my eyes on Jesus. Too many of us get distracted and our focus is on our problems. Or on the things that Satan would want to distract us with. Too many men I know. Running the race well. Pretty girl. And they've left the path. As Mark Driscoll once said, guys, next time you say, that girl is hot, remember, so is hell. <laughs> I'm really risking it tonight, right? <laughs> but Satan will bring good things. It doesn't have to be a beautiful woman or a good-looking guy or, or a good job or a career. What is the price of your soul? What, what is the price that you're willing to pay to take you away from Christ? Keep your eyes fixed on Christ, not on stuff. Ministry. People have left Christ and left his ways and left obedience for the sake of ministry. That's probably the saddest of all. Focus on him, not your circumstances. Focus on him in your circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 5. It's good if I use some scripture in this preacher. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will. Philippians 4.4, rejoice always. Romans 5, let us glory in our sufferings. Why? Because suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope that does not disappoint. I love in Daniel 3, Daniel's friends who are confronted with being burned alive for not bowing to an idol. And when faced with that threat, they say to the king, King, you tell us, should we obey you or God? Should we bow to our circumstance or to our God? And then they say something profound. For our God is able to save us. And he will. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow. And that's an incredibly profound statement. When I'm in the midst of turmoil and devastating circumstances. Will Murray was an amazing example of this. When he he was battling cancer and he was given the news, you've got four months to live. And I spoke to him and he said, I've asked the Lord to give me another 17 years. And And I pray that he will. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to back off. I'm going to go out running my race hard. And he ended his race running at a sprint. He sprinted towards that finish line because his eyes weren't on his circumstances. He said, I know that my God is able to deliver me, and he will. But even if he doesn't, I will not bow to this circumstance. And you know what? Ultimately, God did deliver him. He didn't give him a temporary reprieve for another 17 years. He said, I'm going to give you a fully restored, glorified body for all time. And we're sad because we miss him. He's not sad. But his eyes were not on his circumstances. He didn't let his circumstances dictate how he lived his life. His eyes were on God to the end. The second thing that, that we need to have in our lives, if, or the second characteristic, is a submitted life. 
And submission speaks of a posture, a way of thinking, a way, a, an attitude. It's not just external conforming. Submission is different to obedience. It's possible to obey without submitting, and it's possible to submit without obeying. So anybody who's had kids or seen kids knows that kids can obey without submitting. They do what they're told out of threat of punishment, but you can see all over their face and with every fiber of their being, they're like saying, okay, I'm cleaning my room, but I've got to let you know I am not happy. And I'm going to do the minimum I have to do to stop me getting punished. That's not submission. Submission is, okay, I understand that's what you want me to do. I'm going to do it the best I can do. But it's also possible to submit without obeying. So if our government suddenly passed a law and said it is illegal to pray, it's illegal to worship, it's illegal to preach the gospel. I wouldn't start bad-mouthing the government. I would have to say, hey, I want to honor you as far as possible. But when you're in direct conflict with my God, I have to rather obey God. And if you have to punish me for that, that's on you. And so I'm not going to have a bad attitude towards you, but neither can I obey you in this matter. And so it's possible to have a submissive heart without obedience. And it's possible with God as well. It is not to disobey him because he's always right. We only think we're always right. Well, I'm, I'm almost always right. As I've said before, I was wrong once. I thought I'd made a mistake. But a submitted life. James 4, 7, submit yourself to the Lord. Luke 22, Romans 12, Philippians 2, all speak of an attitude and a posture of submission. A continuous life of prayer that is submissive to God and to others is is what we read about in Philippians 1 and Philippians 4. We need to be those who are submitted to the will of God. And what is the will of God for you? We're we're at a, a leader's camp. Uh, and guys are kind of, they've been a call to action and people are going, yes, Lord, any time, any place, anywhere. If I asked you who would be willing to stand and say, God, send me any time, any place, anywhere, most of you would stand, right? Because in theory, that sounds glorious. Maybe that any time, any place, anywhere is I want you to go and, and, and preach in America or I want you to, you know. I said, you know, there are people in India that when they convert to Christianity, they are so rejected by their communities. They lose their jobs, they lose their livelihoods. And the only thing, they're, they're not even allowed to beg in some areas because begging is reserved for a certain caste or a certain group of people. The only way they can get any income at all is to clean latrines, to clean pits full of human poo. And that's what they have to do because of their profession of Christ. And most of them will never preach the gospel to the nations. They'll never write a book. They'll never release a music video. You will never hear of them for the rest of their life. All they will do is remove human poo from a pit to the glory of God. My question is, what if you say any time, any place, anywhere, and he says, okay, I'm asking you to go clean human poo for the rest of your life. Anything but that, Lord. No. Submission is, Lord, whatever you have. 
And he's a good father. So if he asks you to do something that is beyond your ability, beyond your patience, beyond your strength, beyond your endurance, the good thing is he doesn't leave you alone to do it. But he will come and give you the grace, power, and endurance to do it. And then the third aspect of a life of a a true Levite, a a true priest of God, is a devoted life. Acts 2.42 speaks of a church, and they were devoted. They devoted themselves. They weren't forced to, they weren't manipulated to, they devoted themselves. And devotion has a whole shade of meaning. But in terms of what we're talking about tonight, one aspect of that meaning is devotion speaks of persevering under pressure, moving forward despite resistance, continuing to do it when it gets hard. Because when we say yes when it's easy, that's not submission, that's agreement. Submission only happens when it's something we'd rather not do. Submission is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Father, if there is any other way, please find another way. And yet, not my will, but your will be done. And sometimes we will find ourselves, some of you currently are probably finding yourself in that position and saying, Lord, why does it have to be this way? Surely there's another way. And I think it's okay. He's our father. He wants to hear the cry of our hearts. And if you look at the Psalms, half of the Psalms are David complaining. But he doesn't end complaining. He starts going, God, why? God, all these people are after me. God, life sucks. God, I'm I'm just in pain. I'm in turmoil. But where where he arrives is, and yet, God, I will worship you. And yet, God, I will surrender to you. And yet, God, and what's interesting is, in, um, in Job and in other places, even um, I've, I've come across this in several places, when people refer to uh, not understanding what God's doing because their life seems so hard, they say, these mysteries are too wonderful for me to know. Think about that for a minute. When your life seems so bad that you're begging God to change it, and he says, no, I'm not going to change it. My grace is sufficient for you. Understand this, the truth of what's happening is too wonderful for you to know. Seems strange, but it's true. And one day we'll stand before him and all things will be made known. And even in the, when, you, when you think back to your greatest difficulties and your greatest challenges and the moments of your greatest persecution, whatever it may be, you'll bow down and say, all your ways are good. And in his mercy, he will allow us to understand one day. He doesn't let you understand now because your mind can't cope with it. It's too wonderful for you to know. So we need to be a devoted people. As Levites, as those peculiar people who are bringing the presence and the glory and the power of God back into the center of things, we need to be people who are God-centered, God-focused, submitted and devoted. Worship is a lifestyle, it's an attitude, and it's an action. God is calling us to be a committed people, that we commit ourselves to being priests, that we are people who worship him, that we are interceding for others, that we are living devoted lives, that we're committed to seeking God and his ways for ourselves and those we love. 
that we live out a life of prayer and worship and faith and obedience in such a way that those who aren't yet in the family will look at you and say, you are weird. And I'm not talking about super spiritual weirdos. Yeah? There are some people, they think they're being weird for Jesus, they're just weird. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about being so on fire for Jesus that even other Christians think you, you should calm down. Somebody once said, by the time the average Christian reaches the right temperature, most other Christians think he has a fever. We need to be on fire for Jesus. We need to be passionate for Jesus. And we need to say, you know what? I love you, and to some degree I care what you think. But I care more about what the Lord thinks. And I'm willing to be of no reputation. I'm willing to lose it all. I'm willing to be considered weird and peculiar for the sake of bringing the glory of God back into its rightful place in my life and the life of the church and into the life of those who I love. And here's the challenge. Or here's the the reality, rather. Many of those who mock and criticize you for being weird are likely those who are going to be convicted by the truth of the gospel and changed at some point in the future. We often talk about revival. And if we want revival, we're going to have to pray a lot more. But we're also going to have to be those who carry the presence of God wherever we go. Where did you first hear the gospel? Where where was it that God met you and changed your life? Was it when a friend or a family member was talking to you? For most of you, that would be the case. The key to revival is not big meetings. The key to revival is each of us being priests who are carrying the presence of God and interceding for those who don't yet know him. I want to read it again. I won't read the King James Version. I will read the verse from Peter so that we can get it. But it's also worth noting that this verse in Peter is a quote. And it's a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Deuteronomy where God is making covenant with his people. He's making covenant with Israel. Israel represents the community of faith. And so Peter is saying God is making a covenant, a new covenant with us. And in this covenant, this is his promise to us. This is, as we come into covenant, this is what we become as the community of faith, as the people of God. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Yeah, that you may proclaim, the, that you may bring the knowledge of his glory. Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Guys, you're a peculiar people. Some of you are a lot more strange than others. Thankfully, not many of you are as strange as I am. But let's be a people devoted to being so sold out for Jesus that those who don't know him look at us and instantly recognize there's something strange, something different, something peculiar 
And yet something I want. Why is it you're so full of joy and peace in the midst of your circumstances? Why is it you're not get, getting bent out of shape by COVID? Why is it you so freely give your time to others and to the church? What, what is it? Why is it? Well, let me introduce you to somebody who can do the same for you. Let us be a peculiar people. Can we pray? Lord, I thank you that you chose us. Even while we were still incapable of choosing you, you reached out and you you met us where we were at, in our sin, in our unbelief, in our guilt, in our shame, in our weakness. And you met with us and you said, I love you, I want to make you family, and I've got a purpose and a plan for your life. And you took our lives which were meaningless and gave them meaning. And we want to live lives that are worthy of that calling. We want to be a people of such gratitude that we act not to earn that salvation, but out of an abundance of gratitude for that salvation. And that we are sold out to you, that we become your priests, carrying your presence, not just for our own benefit, but the benefit of the whole household of God, that that presence and that glory and that grace and that power might overflow from us into a dark world and a dying world that so desperately needs your light. And shining light in a dark world will mean that sometimes we're rejected, sometimes we're ridiculed, sometimes we'll be misunderstood. It also means that we have to live for an audience of one. It also means that we've got to put you at the center and not ours. That we've got to focus on you and not our, our circumstances. And Lord, I pray right now for everyone that's going through difficult circumstances. Some with major health challenges. Some with financial challenges. Some with relational challenges. Some with spiritual challenges. And I pray for breakthrough in them. And breakthrough isn't always that the problem goes away. Breakthrough is sometimes that we receive the grace to cope with joy in the midst of the circumstances that we're in. But I pray that we would be a God-focused, submitted, devoted people, willing and able to dare to live crazy, wild, sold-out lives that we dare to risk the impossible, we'll dare to risk failure, we'll dare to risk it all for the sake of making you known. 